It'll help if somebody uh, gives Neil, Pastor Neil, one of those activity sheets to keep him busy. That'd make it a little easier, too. I said that the first service. Nobody laughed. You must be awake. (laughs) Well, Pastor Neil's been bringing us through uh, a time to look at the Ten Commandments, calling it the first and ten. When I first heard it, I thought he was getting ready for football season, but no, it's how to live well. How do we live well? To realize that those Ten Commandments were given in preparation for a new opportunity for the people of God. And today, as we come about, we're just in about to embark on some new opportunities. You know, just as we look down at that lake, isn't that a beautiful lake in France? Ooh. But just to look down there, to know that, yeah, I've got to climb down there. I've got to get there someplace. But I'm going to have a new opportunity if I make it all the way down there to enjoy that lake. Just as we begin kind of a school year coming up, and the church year is based upon the school year in lots of ways. And as a teacher, one of my other hats... I've got to get ready for that in a couple of weeks. Kids are going to be coming in. Please don't tell my principal yet that the list of things that I was supposed to do aren't done. All right? Let's keep that between you and I. Um, but the books haven't been read. The back-to-school sales, I think they started back in June and scared me to death. Um, but, you know, we're, we're getting back to that time, and we're looking at the brink of a new opportunity, new things coming up as we look into the fall. And then Pastor Neil Brack brought us through those first four commandments where we're really looking at our vertical relationship, our relationship with God, of putting God first. You know, you've gotten up this morning and you made sure you're here on a Sunday morning and you're, you're trying to put God first. And we need to do that. It's so easy to let other things creep into our life. And then to accept no substitutes. You know, today we have substitutes for everything. We got substitutes for cream and butter, and I don't even know if there's real sugar left in the world. It seems everything I pick up doesn't have it. But we accept substitutes for everything. And yet God says, don't accept any substitute. Don't let anything take my place. Pick up the real thing. I think it was Coke had a little advertisement one time. It's the real thing. Take God seriously was the third commandment. He's serious. He's our maker, our redeemer. We saw those titles of him before we, as we walked into the service this morning. Do we take him seriously? And then fourthly, to take that time to recalibrate, to make sure those four commandments are being followed and we're not getting out of sync with him. And then last week, We started to look at the horizontal relationships. We began to look at how do we value our parents, to highly value our parents. For our own well-being, God orders us to highly value our parents in both actions and attitude. You see, in that family relationship, we learn how to respect authority. And I can tell you, as a teacher, about 500 kids a week That's a tough thing. (laughs) They're going to come back in a couple weeks and that authority thing is is really hard. They'll kind of miss out on that. How to respect authority. And today, we come up to the sixth commandment. 
And I'm going to take it out of Deuteronomy 5.17. And you can look in your Bibles if you'd like. If you're looking at a pew Bible, it's on page 152. And as Pastor said earlier, yep, he gave me three words to preach on. those three or four words, depending on your translation, are simple words, and they say this, do not murder. At least I get four in my version, thou shalt not murder. Three words. And some of you are probably here, and I already saw a couple of elbows go when we talked about the honoring our parents and people playing the Holy Spirit. Maybe you weren't here last week, but you can listen to it on, on the chapel's website, I'm sure. But, you know, I was in places where this was a commandment that people had broken. And I'd go visit them in jail. But some of us can sit here and go, well, hey, I can check this one right off. I don't have to worry about this one. I'm free on this Sunday. But I think we've got to wait a minute, not so fast. What is it really telling us? It's saying that God values life. He values life. What is it not saying? Sometimes we've got to look at what it's not saying to get it right. First off, it's not prohibiting the killing of animals. Now, we have to be good stewards of what God's given to us. We have to care for his creation. And you can be a vegetarian if you would like to be. But you just can't use this verse to do it. If we're going to be true to Scripture, we have to be sure that Scripture doesn't contradict itself. And if we check out Genesis 9.33, it says, Every living creature will be food for you. As I gave the green plants, I've given you everything. And then secondly, it does not prohibit capital punishment. That's not up for you or me to decide. It's God's agent of justice is the government. Whatever it is in that time and in that place. And we can take a look at Leviticus 24 for that. But that decision is not in my hands. I may have a place in that. I may vote for the government. I may be part of the government. But it's not in my hands or yours. God leaves that in the government's hands. It does not prohibit war. Ecclesiastes 3.8 says that there's a time of love, a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. Yes, that's a words from Songs of the 60s, but it's also from Ecclesiastes 3.8. Well, what does it say to us? You know, it's a time in our culture where we're not wearing guns on our hips like the Wild West. We don't have swords by our side. We're not going to go dueling somebody outside, I hope. Although I did take in a car and found somebody's handgun left in it in my other job and said, uh, I think you forgot something here. He goes, oops. What does it say? And it's pretty straightforward. Do not murder. Don't take somebody's life. But I had to think this past few weeks as I was working on it. Why did it follow honor your father and your mother? And so I started to look back, and I really had never put this thing together, although I probably should have. If I take back in the beginnings, and we have Adam and Eve in the garden, 
And they're enjoying the garden and the beauty of the garden. And then they decided to sin. And we don't know how long they were enjoying the garden and its perfection. When no weeds grew, it never rained, there would be dew on the earth every, every morning. The animals just kind of romped with each other. It was kind of a beautiful place. We have no clue what that was like. In fact, we're told that creation groans because of everything that changed once sin came in. And Adam and Eve were driven from that garden never to go back. And then they had two famous children, Cain and Abel. Why did their children become famous? Well, they did. Adam and Eve, by that time, probably had other children. But the famous ones are Cain and Abel. Cain, the farmer. Abel, the herdsman. Cain gives a grain offering. Seems to make sense. You're a farmer. That's what he's got. Abel, a herdsman, gives the firstborn of the flock. But there was a problem that occurred with that offering. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 4, verse 5, if we go back there. Genesis chapter 4, verse 5. It's on page 3, if you're looking in the Pew Bible. We have recorded for us this in Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 5. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. And Cain was furious. He was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you furious? Why are you downcast? If you do right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's guardian? Then he said, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed with alienation from the ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood you have shed. If you work the land, it will never again give you its yield. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. There were consequences to that first murder. God valued life. He said, Cain, things are not going to go well with you. Farming is going to go bad. You're not going to be able to grow anything. You're going to be a restless wanderer. There's going to be no place to call home. You're going to be hidden from God's presence. And if you want to check out this week, Hebrews 11, for why his sacrifice wasn't accepted, we find it wasn't so much what he gave. It was his heart attitude. It's his faith. And we come to find out that murder was the first sin recorded for us outside the garden. Murder. You know, as we look at sin, we kind of go, well, that's a little one, big one. God says there's no difference in his eyes. But there we are. We have murder. And God values life. The psalmist writes in Psalm 139, 14, I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, and I know this full well. 
My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. God knows each one of us. He knows us before we were born. We weren't hidden from him even before we came into this earth. He knew exactly where we were and who we are. And it says you're wonderfully and remarkably made. Job says this, since a man's days are determined and the numbers of his months depend on you and since you have set limits, he cannot pass. God knows our days. And the church has valued life. And it has stood up for life. Historically, if we look back, the church is the one who has been there in the forefront to care and to love life. It has spoken out against euthanasia. It's been the church who has spoken out to be there to care for the elderly and the sick. It's been the church who has started hospitals. It's been the church who's been forefront of medicine. It's not been until the 20th century when it's become a business that the church has kind of lost its place in the medical field. It's the church that has spoken out against suicide, of taking one's own life. And yes, there are those dark nights of the soul when it seems as though nothing can help. And there is no hope, yet God is there. And that does not mean those times are easy or that there's a quick fix. But God has given us professionals to help, friends to come alongside, to walk with us and talk with us and to be there. That doesn't make it easy. But God says, I know your days. It's been the church that's spoken out against abortion and spoken up for the unborn. And not only spoken up with words, but has been there in action and love. To be a practical hope. I'm glad that hope is part of uh, compassionate care through the pregnancy centers that we help. Whether it's financially, whether it's some of you who volunteer, whether it's helping in post-abortion counseling, financial giving opening your homes to care for children and their parents during times of crisis. When I was very young, that crisis came upon me. As a friend of mine, a good friend, a gal, I came back from college and I was visiting in Christmas time. And she came to me and says, I think I'm pregnant. And I went, wow. I had no clue what to do. And back then, there wasn't places you could bring people to kind of help out. So I went to my mom and said, "Uh, Mom, what do I do? She says, well... I'll make you an appointment. You've got to take her to get tested. And so I did. I took her out to get tested. And I actually went to, went to school, my old high school, and said to the principal, I need to take this girl. And he goes, oh, okay. And he just let me. Okay. <laughs> Didn't ask me why. Just kind of trusted me and knew that whatever I needed to do was the right thing. It's kind of amazing. God just went before me and kind of opened those doors and did, sat with her as she told her parents about the positive outlook. The funny thing is, they thought I was the dad. That didn't get cleared up until a couple hours later after I left the house. (laughs) But I watched how them as a family took care of that situation and how they loved on that little girl that was born. It wasn't an easy time. And then as the church has spoken out against genocide, to speak out to offer alternatives, to work for peace. I want to bring you back to a little picture of a little Baptist church in Nice, France. It's the Baptist church 
that the international church that I pastored with would meet in, at the, in the evening. It's one of the earliest Baptist churches built in France. And evangelical churches are still looked at as uh, really not right, very suspicious. This Baptist church was built with uh, an aristocratic lady's dowry. And at the time of this church, when it was built, if she gave up her dowry, it meant she was not going to get married. So that church took great sacrifice. And that church was started, and it struggled. And during the time of Hitler, it was built right in the Jewish neighborhood because there were two synagogues close by, and Orthodox Jews would not hitch up a horse to go to church, to go to synagogue. They won't drive their cars to go to synagogue. They want to be able to walk. And so it was there. And when Hitler started to round up the Jewish people, the pastor and people of the church took them and put them down in the basement, a little crawl space, and that's where they stayed, protected. It was their ark. And they lived there throughout that time. And they were kept safe. And to this day, the Jewish people in that neighborhood, many of them still are shop owners, when the clothing changes at the end of the season, when the food is about to be changed, they drop it off at the church, sometimes with just a knock on the door, very quietly at night. And then those clothes and the food goes down in that same basement where the people were kept safe. And then it's given out to the, in the food pantry and in the clothing pantry that the Baptist church runs and it goes out to North Africans. Pretty amazing feat. How God uses what people did and they stood and they valued life. And today, the Baptist church has a food pantry and clothing pantry given by a lot of the Jewish neighbors out to North Africans. Only God can do that through his grace because the church valued life There were some churches that did not and turned their back. But this church stood, risked everything for them. The pastor there was given the greatest honor that a uh, civilian could be given by by the government of France. The church today, if you say you're from that church and the people know the history, you're okay, even if you are an evangelical. It's kind of a great thing. The commandment states, do not murder. And we've just seen examples of the church valuing life and standing up for life. And we know that murder results when we don't value life. But how, does, how do we get to that place? What happens when we get to that place of desiring to murder somebody? What leads to that act? It begins in our heart, just as it did to Cain. Just as it began when I've spoken with people who are behind bars who have done that action, it began in their heart. And Jesus speaks to that. He's up in the Sermon of the Mountain. He's up with his followers and he's sitting there speaking. And if you'd like to turn there to go to Matthew 5, page 816 in your pew Bible if you're there. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, I'll begin in. And Jesus says this because he was told that people thought he was getting rid of the law. And he says, I'm not getting rid of the law. No way. But he does kind of blow him out of the water with it. He says this. You've heard it's that it was said to our ancestors, ancestors, do not murder. 
and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And whoever says to his brother, fool, will be subject to the Sanhedrin, the court of the day. But whoever says, you moron, will be subject to hellfire. So if you're offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother, then come, offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him, or your adversary will hand you over to the judge, the judge to the officer, and you'll be thrown into prison. I assure you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penalty of a daily wage. You see, that was what happened with Cain. He simmered that hatred, that jealousy in his heart. And he became angry at his brother. How many times do we simmer in our heart? You know, simmering is good for spaghetti sauce. Yeah, in the summertime, we kind of like a fresh sauce. And you don't want this. But, you know, when it's cold out and you got your house all full of smells and things are just simmering and that sauce is just getting thicker and thicker and it's been on there on the stove all day, it's really good. But when we have anger in our heart and it's simmering in there and it's there and it's hanging on, it causes things like murder. It causes us not to value life. It causes us to call people's names. You know, in our culture, name-calling isn't that big a deal. We kind of call people lots of different names, and we kind of laugh about it, and some are done in fun, some in jest. Some maybe have a little dig to them. But in the Old Testament time, in Jesus' day, names are so important. Names are still important in Europe. I mean, if you have a title, you have to use it. It's got to be on your place. If you're the wife of a doctor, you're Madam Doctor Doctor. If you've got two doctorates, you're Doctor Doctor Doctor, and people have to address you by that. Titles and names are important. In us, to us, it's, it's not that important. But they still hurt. And when we call somebody a name, it does say something about what's in our heart. In the Aramaic word there that, that Jesus uses, it says raka. If you call somebody an idiot, a fool, it's like murdering somebody. You're not valuing their life as God does. You're holding something against us. And then we can even be holding things against God. We can be angry at him. And yet God says, you know, talk to him about that. Don't let things fester. Speak to him. Just as we're supposed to speak to people that are around us. When those little things are happening and they kind of mount up and keep growing and they're festering, God says, deal with it. In a few moments, we're going to come to the Lord's table, giving an offering. You know, if we're holding something against somebody, we shouldn't partake in that. If we know somebody's got something against us, we ought to go to the best of our ability and try to resolve that.
Now, if we have something against somebody and they don't know it, we don't really need to go messing them up and go kind of throwing our junk at them. But we need to handle that with God. Well, I'm going to leave you with a couple of nagging questions or takeaways, as Pastor Neil says. Do you value life? Do you look at the people around you and say, God loves that person? That means God loves the person who's probably still texting and driving even though they're not supposed to be. Or the guy who pulled out of the boat ramp in front of me with the trailer on and he's talking on the phone. But God still loves him. Did he do a foolish thing? Yeah. Do I do foolish things? Yeah. (laughs) Do you do foolish things? Yeah. Do we want people to forgive us? Yes. How about in our family relationships? What's your attitude? Do you resolve matters quickly? Is that kind of the, the household way? The dirty socks? The peanut butter knife in the sink? The coffee cup left on the bathroom sink? Do we handle those little things before they become big? How about with our coworkers? With our neighbors. Yep, school's going to open soon. And kids, I'm going to ask you, how about your classmates? How do you do with them? How are you on the playground? Do you resolve things quickly? And then lastly, I'm going to ask, are you, is God calling you in a practical way to become involved in valuing life what I call on the global levels, the societal levels. I had the great opportunity of ministering in Vienna where the UN United Nations is. And there were people there that truly felt they were there to work on issues of genocide and to bringing peace and for healing nations. They were Christians and that's what they wanted to do. They felt called by that by God. They felt called to work on issues of like euthanasia and care for the elderly on a worldwide basis. Maybe somebody here is called to do that. God is calling us all to not simmer. He's calling us to look at us on the inside. Where's our heart? Are we valuing life? Are we dealing with life issues quickly? Or are we letting things consume us and fester? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you how you've preserved it, cared for it, that we have it, that we can look into it. I thank you that your Holy Spirit speaks to each one of us where we are through the foolishness of preaching. Oh, and Father, it's so foolish. There are people here of different ages and different backgrounds and in different places in their walk. And somehow you, through the Holy Spirit's work, can touch each heart. And Father, I thank you for that. And it's not through my words, but it's through what you do. Father, I pray today that you would take your word and it wouldn't turn, return void and empty, but it would do that's what you called it to do. That you change us, that you change me, that you change our heart attitude towards one another, that we would value life 
as we leave here today. That we would realize that we are important to you. That you've loved us and you valued us so much. You sent Jesus Christ to die on a cross when we were alienated and far from you, running away from you with our sin. And yet you allow us to come into your presence because you paid for our sin. Father, thank you for the value that you put on our lives. That you were willing to send your own son to die for us. I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.